Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pachet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mindshifters Radio. Hi, and welcome to Mindshifters Radio. Today is Memorial Day, Monday, May the 29th, 2023. And the first hour is pre-recorded. Dr. Tim is still um, away. And this is the interview that he did with Dale Allen Hoffman. And we will be live on the second hour. Enjoy the show. We are pleased to be able to have Dale Allen Hoffman here today. Dale Allen Hoffman is an ancient Aramaic wisdom keeper and energetic healer sharing long-suppressed ancient secrets and healing modalities. He's published numerous audio and video programs and is author of the book Echoes of an Ancient Dream, Toning on the Path of Light. Dale is a civilian scholar, a mystic and healer, He brings ancient insight for the present moment. And rather than studying religious history from within the orthodoxy of theological institutions, Dale chose to step off the track of religious programming and take a path less traveled. He encourages others to stop, quote, eating from the menu that's being served and instead embrace an honest, balanced exploration of the actual, authentic history of the Yeshua teachings in all of its manifestations. Dale travels internationally, sharing the experiential philosophies veiled beneath millennia of misunderstandings, beneath skewed translations, and a general lack of perception. Dale has published numerous audio and video programs, and Echoes of an Ancient Dream is his first book. Dale, I think I just turned on your microphone. Are you there? I think you did. It's great to hear your voice. Well, I can say the same thing. I've got to just stop here and be with my breath for a minute. I'm getting one of those God bump moments. Thank you for being here. Oh, absolutely. You asked and I said yes instantly, so (laughs) of course. Well, how would you like to spend this hour, sir? I am at your service. Oh, I can go in any direction. It's probably easier for you to maybe just start with some questions or something along those lines uh, and see where we go. What I'll say is that I've been promoting 
your appearance here, and I've been talking to people about as I reread the book recently, it, it was quite difficult for me to not fill my shows in this past few weeks and then, you know, basically spoil your appearance because <laughs> they would have they've had had me read the book to them basically page by page. Um, I've also uh, had a request out, and we've had several people submit questions, one from Australia, one from North Carolina, one from Philadelphia, and there might be a couple others that I've missed in the emails. What I've said as I talk about your work is basically what we're reading here off the back of your book, that the thing that draws me to your work is the fact that we're not just doing academic study. And you do recognize the value of the academic study, and you talk about standing on the shoulders of those giants who've done that work and how you have made a life practice of putting it into an experiential day-to-day just for yourself. So what part of the early goings of your introduction to this do you want to share with us without having them to read the whole book, which I I highly recommend to people? Well, um, well, the book's, I think, the book's a very easy read. The first section is just kind of stories about how I got into it, and I can dig into a little of that. I mean, for me, it really – the church was always around on some level for me from the time I was born because my grandmother, Irene, was a pillar in the Methodist church, the local Methodist church where I grew up in southern New Jersey, kind of across the Delaware River from Philadelphia in the farmlands, believe it or not, of the Garden State. And she was – there's still – if you go there to that church today, there's still photographs of her hung up in the hallways and stuff. Uh, And then we would also, my brother and sister and I would also walk across town after the Methodist service and go to an Episcopalian service, which, you know, I I recognize now is like Catholic light. It's like same great taste, less filling, you know, less calories, but uh, didn't have the fire and the brimstone, but it had the beautiful pageantry, which really enchanted me. And uh, it was what, the summer of 1979, and I did what, you know, all kids do. At the age of seven, I sat down on my grandmother's floor and I laid out five Bibles and I compared them to each other. Uh, and they were I, – I was actually looking at the Beatitudes, which I still have the Bible, my Bible that my grandmother gave to my mother in the 50s, I think 1956. And my mother didn't really have any use for it because Elvis was out by then, so she had other things to do, and it still has my mom's name on it. But I sort of got that Bible from her when I was five years old. And I actually went through in the beginning and scrawled down my favorite Beatitudes. That's not, I don't think that's something that you know most kids that age do, probably when I was five or six. But when I was seven, I started comparing all these Bibles together. And um, I was just struck because they were all very different from one another. There was a, a King James and New King James, which are totally different from each other, uh, a 1611 King James, a Greek, what's called Lexicon Bible, uh, and I don't know what the fifth one was. And I was just struck by there was enough differences that I was confused because everybody could tell me, look, this is the word of God. I don't know that I had the word inerrant in my head yet, but it was like this is the word of God. So God, uh, God said this. And I was really confused. I'm like, well, if God said it, why is it so different? And then I started digging into my grandmother's other Bibles and all the different books she had about it. 
and I was just totally baffled. And, and I said to her, um, I don't understand this. Why is it so different if it's God, if God said this? She said, well, you have to take that on faith. And I went, okay. And I said, what's faith? The exact phrase that she gave me was faith develops in time through faith. And I went, okay, confused. So she said, go talk to the pastor on Sunday. And I asked him. I got the exact same response. So I realized I wasn't – I don't know what it was. I, even when I was young, I noticed people were doing things. They were stepping in footprints. They were doing processes or doing particular things, but I didn't see – I really – I could tell that the life, the vitality, even as a kid, wasn't there. For some reason, what they were doing, they were going there saying the prayers. They are doing these steps to that and the steps to that. And even though they're stepping in those footprints, kind of like Arthur Murray Dance Studio, you know, you just put your footprints, you know, where you got to go and you learn the dance moves, it's still something wasn't happening in them. And I was really interested why I would meet certain people that seemed to be lit up about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, and they couldn't quote me stuff out of the Bible, but I could just feel the tenderness in their heart. There was a lot of people at the nursing home down the street from me that I would sit on these benches, especially this old guy, Mikey, cantankerous old guy, smoked um, took him like two minutes to get the cigarette into his mouth. <laughs> he was griping about everything, but he was such a sweet, pure guy at the same time. And he would like, he just was a really good soul. I would watch him open the doors for people, do things that I, I noticed a lot of the people that were banging the Bible and holding it up weren't doing. Or maybe they were doing it in front of people, and when they weren't around people, they weren't. I was recognizing that stuff, and I just kept digging in myself. And then by the time I was 14, I started writing down a lot of these a uh, lot of phrases from the the you know what Jesus said a lot of it was in red in one of my bibles not the one that was my mom's but a lot of that was in red and I would write that down and then I would write five pages about what I felt that meant and I wasn't writing it cuz I somebody needed to see it it wasn't that at all I just I wrote it cuz I had to and I had experiences like in vacation bible school during the summer where I remember Looking at the page, and this is something I didn't talk about until I put it in my book because I didn't want people looking at me, oh, well, then Dale's special. You know, that word, I'd just rather keep that one. Special as in unique, sure. Special as in better somehow, or I got some sort of whatever that somebody else didn't get that I don't, I'm not interested in hearing. But um, I, I remember looking down at, we were talking about lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And everybody's talking about heaven as if it's a place you go to after you die. And I'm looking at it going, it doesn't say that, though. It's not what it says here. It's, it's not talking about that at all. It's talking about something like now. It's talking about right now. And I looked down at the page of the Bible, and I, gosh, I, I saw layers. I saw different, what I recognize now as languages. Uh, I recognized one as Greek. I recognized one as what one would call um, Hebraic or even classical, pre-Estrangela Aram, Aramaic. I throw too many terms out there, but... Uh, and I, I saw these different languages in different colors, kind of like an outline going deeper into the page. And I remember putting my hand over it because it felt like it was glowing, and it, it, I didn't feel anything. And then all of a sudden I realized that the lights are off in the room. And I went, well, that's odd, and it's really quiet. And I look up, and the room's empty except for me, but there's the teacher uh, who was one of the kids in the class, it was his mom, looking at me going, looking at me like I was guilty of something. And she's looking at me, and she's like, are you coming? And I just kind of got up, and I realized my face must have been white as a ghost because I had no clue what was happening. 
And I remember walking out. I remember the smell of the church, and we're walking down the tile floor, going out the one door and down the brick steps and outside, out behind the church. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm just looking around, and I'm noticing that it's like I can see little lights in the trees, and I can hear this really high not a squeal it was like this shine things shine they look like they shine and i could hear it and you know the best way i would explain it today is it's almost like as if i had like like was listening to music or something through like through a speaker with a blanket over it and i didn't realize the blanket was over it all of a sudden i got it sounding as good as i possibly could i'm like wow that sounds great and then you lift the blanket off there was this presence there was this awareness and i remember standing there and all the other kids are playing running around screaming their brains out and that that teacher still standing there looking at me outside and i'm just standing there probably with my jaw hanging white as a ghost going whoa like what what is this and i sensed that you know uh over and over in the woods and then i'd come back into sort of never sort of normal everyday life and you know i wouldn't find it but i i, I noticed that Jesus was talking about finding that in everyday life, and I, I could tell what he was talking about by heaven. I knew what that meant. I knew what the kingdom meant. I knew what all these different things were, although you know, I had zero chance of putting them into words yet. But when I was 14, I started trying to put it into words and then doing my best to step into it and live it. And I started just really paying close attention to even like my breathing and my heartbeat, and I would lay back in the stream down below my home and go into the irrigation tunnel underneath the road and do this toning and stuff like that. I mean, all listening to my voice coming back a thousand times over because of the ripples in the in the the pipe, you know, that was under the ground and I was having these really profound experiences and I wasn't talking about them with my friends, so I didn't know they weren't having them, but that really sort of was I don't want to say it's a foundation. Uh it was it was the opposite. It wasn't a foundation so much as it was such a dramatic, profound opening, like a portal was opening for me within myself that a, a foundation wasn't able to form. And I think that's where the, the spark really comes from, at least for me, is because I'm not int- – I'm so – you know, give me the humility. I'm not interested in, in – forming some kind of dogma around what I'm doing or saying or even my interpretations or whatever, you know, I'm doing my best to help people find that within themselves because I know I found it within myself um, and a lot of it I can't put into words. You know, I know what a lot of Aramaic words or terms mean, but I would never dare (laughs) put them in English because I wouldn't know how. It would take me five pages to put one word into English sometimes, uh, but I know how it feels. And that's, you know, that's always been the thing that's led me forward. You know, it's like when I'm with my daughter, our eight-year-old, our youngest, her name's Shemaya, which is the word heaven or sky in Aramaic. Uh, the ayah sound at the end means something that has no boundary or is just consistently growing, growing, growing. When I'm with her, I'm able to really be wholly, fully present. And, you know, when I was really deep in the academics, it, it's great and it's exciting. But the thing, uh, I have to be honest, that the thing that I had a lot of frustration about was – Everybody was saying something different, and everybody was saying they were correct. And then I would watch someone get a hold of things that were really great and really profound and then almost basically turn it into like a religion or turn it into like – boil it down and harden it into something that uh, 
especially in the academic world. They would boil it down and let it harden so that they couldn't see the forest for the trees anymore. They weren't able to really find the magic in that thing that's right there in front of them. They couldn't see in the Aramaic or Hebrew the word sod, which is the word secret, which doesn't mean secret like you know, the, this, the, the secret mystery schools. That didn't mean you weren't allowed to know they were there necessarily or you were never allowed to hear that. What it actually means is that you've got something you've had in your hand right here in front of your face. You've had it in front of your face for you know days, weeks, years, and you've never seen it. You've never seen its true nature. You've only ever seen the essentially the codes, the frames, the beliefs that you project upon it. But then all of a sudden you have this moment where you you know you take a big breath in the nose, out the mouth, and all of a sudden it reveals itself. And it was like the academics allowed me a couple of things. One, it allowed me to understand that nobody truly really knows who wrote this stuff. Nobody truly really knows if Jesus said any of this. Nobody knows you know, where it comes from. Nobody knows the source of Christianity. Uh, you hear all this stuff about the original Greek texts, and everybody says – so many people say they're sourced in Greek. And it's like, well, how many of the originals of the Greek we have? Oh, zero. Yeah, but uh, okay. Uh, you start thinking about things like that, and you realize that in the end, what really matters isn't—it's not in the details. It's not in the—it's not in the words of the letters. It's in: Am I awake right now? Am I able to be wholly, fully open in this present moment? And that's where the humility, which is that third beatitude, makike, which literally means an open relationship with Earth, grounding into the Earth. It's where the word humus. Uh, relates with humility. The Aramaic word makike, that's also in Lakota, which means, in Lakota, that means to lay naked on the bare earth without a mat. And I realized that it wasn't in the books, it wasn't in the pages, it was in me. And I was only able to see, when I was deep in the academics, I was only able to see almost like what was put into me on some level if I was going to do what everybody else was doing. I just, I couldn't do that. I had to go off the path. I had to go look. You know, I'd go to these symposiums, and they're looking at me like I've got lobsters crawling out of my ears because I'm like, y'all are arguing about these things, and you're screaming at each other in, or excuse me, in, in English and Hebrew at this one Semitic conference down in Tampa, and they're tearing each other apart. And cheesy little Dale, I'm like, has anybody actually tried to put it into practice? Maybe – Finding out if it actually works, maybe finding out if there's an experience here will tell you if it's real or not, rather than this arguing about what different scholars said. And it was the wildest moment for me because all these people turned and looked at me in the room like my head turned blue, uh, and then they ignored me and went back to what they were doing again as if I wasn't there. And I was like, well, that's an interesting experience. And I actually had to breathe through that, you know, doing breath work. I had several breathwork sessions where that came up and my face got hot. You know, that's the humility, that's the humus, the grounding into the earth. Um, so I realized I had a, a un, again, not special but a unique view maybe uh, from those experiences I had as a child in the woods and those deep moments with my grandmother you know, listening to gospel music. I had a certain experiential um, view and or um, – take on things that I think a lot of people just trying to be by the book didn't have. And uh, I learned to be okay with that. And I learned to be okay with people telling me, uh, you know, I was a blithering idiot because I was saying some of the things I'm saying. And then, of course, the weird thing was years later, some of them come back around and they're talking about it as if they thought it up. And it's like, that's a wild thing to watch. But uh, 
Um, to me, it's just about being open. And I didn't find a lot of openness in the people that were addicted to the words on the page. And that's the whole midsection of my book is that seeing beyond the letters on the page, taking some things like that in the beginning uh, was the word, Bereshit eto wichwa milta in the Gospel of Yohanan and John, and being able to unpack that and say, look, I can go on for six pages about what this word means, and even words that I would have translated it as ten years ago I wouldn't use today because I realize it's not that either. And I, there is no direct translation in English. It just doesn't it, – it's not possible. Um, and that, to me, I love it. I love things like that. But yet you would look at it in these symposiums and a lot of the scholarly stuff. They would hammer down some kind of particular meaning, and then they'd start making beliefs around that, around their whatever. This is the English equivalent of it. The funny thing is there's no English equivalent for the word milta. It just doesn't exist. Um, it was all about the experience for me. It's still about the experience for me. Uh, it doesn't matter what I know, it, not in the, the slightest. What matters is how's my energy, you know, how am I carrying myself uh, in the world? Does Is my heart open? Uh, am, is my energy open? Am I in that humility? Am I aware of the earth beneath my feet? Am I aware of the rise and fall of my breath, the beating of my heart? When I'm in those spaces, I can see depth in the teachings and depth in the living of those teachings that I'm not able to see when I'm in some kind of uh, almost like an obsession that some people can get about putting my agenda across and making people bend to that agenda. And I found that over and over in the academic world, and I had to let it go. There's certain scholars I fell in love with, Elaine Pegel, she's like a rock star, Bishop John Shelby Spong, Marcus Borg, but most of them, they just kind of clamp down and they push their view, and that's what they get their sponsorships for, and that's how they make their money. So I had to walk beyond it. I had to just let it go, and to be okay with that, too. Oh, yeah. Well, we just had the most amazing, uh, the most amazing retreat we've ever offered. It was it's a funny thing. It's called the Aramaic Path of Initiation. It was a five-day, four-night retreat here in Asheville, uh, near Asheville, Mountain Light Sanctuary. And uh, it was really deeply in the living of how we really uh, live this. How do we initiate? And that's a funny thing, too, because um, when we sched- we've got, we're taking this path of what's all- – now it's called the Aramaic Path of Light rather than initiation – to the United Kingdom. We're going to be in Frome, Somerset. We're going to be going to Glastonbury. We're going to be going up onto the Glastonbury tour, um, the huge mound with the temple at the top where we're going to be doing Aramaic toning. I'm going to be doing water blessings in the uh, the fountain at the, um, the Chalice Well, which is King Arthur's waterfall where the water turns red because they said it had the blood of, uh, you know, the grail, which, of course, the water's red because of iron, but shh. Um, but when I took it to, to the when we started taking it to the UK, and we also have one in Sedona in September, Aramaic Path of Light. They were like, "Well, people aren't going to like the word initiation," and I'm like, "Well, what's wrong with the word initiation?" They're like, "Well, it's, it sounds cultish," and I'm like, "Well, this is a great example. Do you know what the word initiate means? People think it means to now within the last 150 or so years in English, it's taken on some kind of meaning." understanding of being initiated into something but that's not what initiation means to initiate means first cause initiate means to start back at the beginning to go back at the beginning and initiate from that point not in it doesn't have to imply anything with something new but i changed it to light because people are okay with that but but in the retreats we're doing 
the breath work, we're doing, uh, there's toning, there's deep expression circles where we're sitting in a circle and we've got a crystal or whatever object sitting in the middle and people go up and they, they pick that up and when they've got that in their hand, they've got the floor and they can say whatever they want. It gets very expressive. Things come out. We're literally living the Aramaic Beatitudes, which were a step-by-step process um, that have completely changed my life, uh, the Beatitudes, especially those from the Gospel of Matthew. But we've, we've got, yeah, we've got the retreats, one in the U.K. in September. We've got Sedona, Arizona in October. Those are both already filling up quickly. Uh, in, in the Sedona one, we're going to be doing uh, water blessings in a river in the desert, really amazing. But we've also got them developing in Australia, Slovenia, South Africa, and the Bahamas right now as well. Um, but, I mean, the focus of the work for me it's still the same, which I think more than anything, you know, speaking of that, the Beatitudes is really a huge core of where I'm I come from. I'm glad you from. mentioned that. I, I was just about huge to ask core. you because we, we have um, in the support group that's been running, it'll be 15 years in August, The uh, one of the things that got way of mastery in J.M.'s work and his love's breath yeah. and, and his um, – Aramaic Beatitudes, and we just listened to his Beatitudes again last week. Um, so I wanted to ask you what, because I I, I view those uh, as kind of a, a yogic practice, as he talks about, and I use it that mm-hmm. way. What would you say? How what what how are you looking at the Beatitudes? Uh, take the first few as a um, a step by step practice. Oh, absolutely. Actually, the first three to me are the core of my spiritual life more than anything else. And I have to, you know, do a shout out to JM, to to John Michael, um, because he, you know, I know he's got like a following of people, you know, talking about how he channeled Jeshua. There's no J in Aramaic, which that puzzles me, but... um, but I got to say, his Beatitudes, I, uh, that DVD fell into my hands maybe 15 years ago, and I thought it was spectacular. He really got it. He understood it. What JM's actually doing, the truth of what's happening there, is he's taken Rocco Erico's work, and to an even larger extent, um, he's taken Neil Douglas Klotz's work, and he's put it into his own words. And I think he's, that's really the honesty of what happened, and I think he's done an amazing job with it. Um, there's, again, in, in the Beatitudes DVD, there's such a humility there. For me, the core is very simple in the first three Beatitudes. And just to, to let these out there in Aramaic, Now, the, that first one... Um, Without even ha- going deep into the the tuvehun, it's actually very, it's you know, it's actually a very simple word, a lot more simple than I think people sometimes make it into. I know that um, Archdeacon Sadduk de Marshamun simply translated it as a heavenly attitude, but I think the real focus should be on that lomaskena ibaruch, that masculine, which was if you, if you have it in. Uh, I, I don't want to get – see, I can go really deep here in the translation of it and how the error of the, the the poor came into it. But let's just say it was a mistranslation because it was translated from Aramaic into Greek before the phonetic markings were there, before the, the what's called diacritical marks or the vowel sounds were on the page. Um, and the Aramaic speakers even said they felt so frustrated by those translations that they created an entirely new style of writing called Estrangela or Estrangela, Edessa, 
so that they could have the phonetic markings, the vowel sounds in there, so there wouldn't be so many errors. They wouldn't be hammering it so bad as they did when they brought it into Greek. Um, but what that first beatitude really means, what maskin means, uh, there's different there's different nuances of what that really means. It doesn't mean poor as in lacking. And the way I explain that is this. Let's say that you've got whatever, $2,000 in your wallet, and you're brand new here to America, and you've, you've never been on American soil before. You, you don't have anything. You have no job. You have no place to live. You have no luggage. You have nothing except the $2,000 in your wallet. And somebody comes up to you 2 o'clock in the morning. You're walking in a dark alley in New York City. Brilliant thing to do. Uh, and someone comes and steals that $2,000 out of your wallet. And then what I'll often say in my gatherings is, what are you? And people will say, well, you're poor. If that's all, that was all your, that was all your income, et cetera, your cash. So that would be what miskin means. If you take the letter, the letters, I'm going to give it to you in, in English, it would be M-S-K-N. And I'll say to my groups, you know, say those, that word. And when you have M-S-K-N, people go miskin, which comes out miskin, which means poor as in lacking. But when you put the phonetic dots in there, it actually changes it from miskin to maskin. Now, miskin means poor as in lacking. Maskin is a little bit different. Let's say you've got $2,000 in your wallet. You open it up, and you take the $2,000 out, and you put it out in your front pocket. The wallet is now what? And that's what maskin means. Miskin means poor as in lacking. Maskin means empty as in open. And there's two other nuances of meaning in that as well. It also means home or sanctuary. It's one of the one of the words for church. So the way that I translate that, it's even the title of my. And I'll, I'm sure at some point write a book called Home and Emptiness. But the way I translate that in my my Beatitude CDs, the two CD set that I have is Home and Emptiness. You find your home in the emptiness of. Baruch, Baruch, Baruch is that word translated as spirit. But the funny thing about spirit is we've got a tiny, minute, almost what, what most scholars would say less than 1% chance that Jesus ever heard the word spiritus in his life, that he ever heard that in the Latin. It's funny because when we think spirit, it's almost like people's arms flap around spirit. It's around, it's within, whatever. But what about if I told you that what that word rucha actually means is frequency or vibration. All of a sudden now it's like, hey, wait a minute. That includes the rise and the fall of your breath. That's the word, rucha. That is the beating of your heart, rucha. That's the movement of air on your skin, rucha. It's magnetism, electromagnetism, electricity, um, solar flares, the energy of the sun, not necessarily the heat, but the effect you feel from that. It means any elemental source that we don't necessarily know why or where it's happening, where it's coming from per se, but we can sense its effects with our senses. So that brings it really, really home. Home in the emptiness of your breath. And that's what I tell people. That's, that's the first step. It's beyond all the theology and all of the framework around it. It's literally being aware of your breath or putting your hand over your heart, being aware of the beat of your heart, being aware of the sounds around you. And the way I you know, put that into English is passive non-resistance, which is my Buddhist, you know, my Buddhist base from my teens and 20s. 
is that you're, I call it the cosmic question mark above your head. It's like you're just being curious. You're allowing yourself to be in this pure moment with the pure frequency and vibration of the rise and fall of your breath, the moving of the air across your skin, the beating of your heart. If you're sensitive enough in a quiet enough room to actually feel your circulatory system and hear the wheezing of that, to be able to, to be aware of the sounds in, within, and all around you, and you're aware of the, those rises and falls, those frequencies and vibrations. That's the first one: is being open in that, empty in that, allowing that. The second, obvile, what that word literally means. Like when I often say to people. It's it's one of the words for mourn. Okay, what does mourn mean? I hear people say bewail, and it's like when people when they use the word bewail, they're using theology. People don't need to hear that. What they need to hear is what it means. Um, what it means when somebody dies and you're in mourning, people usually say, oh, it means I feel bad. Blah blah blah. What abid or abile means is to essentially allow the fullness of what you are feeling. How do you allow the fullness of what you're feeling in the moment, whatever it's happiness, sadness, ecstasy, whatever that may be, by the most amazing way I know of is to be aware of the rise and fall of your breath. So it's number one's breathe, number two is to feel. And when I say feel, I don't mean emote. When I see all these different philosophies yak, yak, yakking about the power of your thoughts, Sorry to tell you, everybody, but even the ancients knew this. Your thoughts don't create anything because your thoughts are actually the effects of what? You're feeling. Feeling is the sensation of pure frequency and vibration. Before any thought you've ever had, you had a feeling. And when I say a feeling, not an emotion. I'm not talking about an emotion that comes from a thought. I'm talking about a feeling. Like you walk into a room and you have zero thoughts going on, but you still have a feeling. And I say to people, you ever been in the room with a baby in the first few hours of its life? Not a lot of thought going on, plenty of feeling happening, pure sensation of frequency and vibration. So you, the breath is moving. You're allowing yourself to feel it. And the third, makike, what that means is literally to flow. The Tao is like a river flowing home to the sea. Literally in Aramaic, makike means to have an open, naked, uh, unhindered relationship, essentially grounding back into the earth. And I said that in Lakota, that word means to lay naked on the bare earth without a mat. And you notice when you feel hum the, the word in English for makike is not meek. There is no meekness there whatsoever. I'm not saying meek is wrong, but it's like 1% out of 100% of the volume of what that can be. It's closer to humility, and humility comes from the Latin root humus, which is that aerated, open layer of earth and soil where water and air can move through. And if you feel humiliated, humus, humiliated, where does your body want to go? It wants to go down into the earth. It wants to ground into the earth. That's what humility is. It's allowing that sacred grounding back into the Mother Earth. So number one, you, f you allow your breath to move. You breathe. You feel and you allow or flow. And when you allow that, she takes it. And as a matter of fact, the word forgive in Aramaic, shabuk, what shabuk means is literally to remove the root of my suffering. You know how you remove the root of your suffering? You consciously, you're allowing that feeling, you mindfully rise that out of your soil and you drop it back to the earth and she'll take it. She'll, it'll ground right back into her. Over and over and over. How many times do you do it? As many times as you need to. A hundred times in a five-minute conversation if you need to. Breathe, feel, allow, slash, flow. And then the Beatitudes go on even deeper beyond that point. But 
I was just watching a Little House in the Prairie episode this morning about an old Jewish craftsman, woodcarver, and I forgot that in that he actually talks about this, this amazing word in Hebrew for compassion, have compassion for each other's. And he says, it's Rachmane. And I went, Rachmanus was what it was, Rachmanus. It's Rachma. And I went, whoa, I forgot it was in the episode. You know, and that Rachma is something that develops further on in the Beatitudes. But breathe, feel, allow, or flow. That changed my life. Well, so, so, so don't leave us hanging. Where does Rachma come in? Well, Rachma is the fifth one. I'll, I'll just really quickly. The fourth one is um, hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, kianuta is that word righteous, which people usually think self-righteous. What kianuta actually means, what kian actually means, is to, well, with uta at the end as well, it's that every breath, every action, every thought, every deed, every feeling, you are conscious that it is in the best interest of all involved meaning not only you and the people around you, but the earth, the air, the water, the animals, etc. It's in a very ecological, you know, I can go deeper into that. But the fifth beatitude, if you just look at it linguistically, the ra sound is a shining forth of light and heat. The hun sound is the old Hebrew word for womb or center point of being, center point of the spiritual being or the physical body. Um, and then the last sound, the ma sound, is essentially the word for mother or birth, a, a birthing forth, shining forth of light and heat from the center point of the spiritual womb. And it's funny because it's Rocco, years ago, 20 years ago, Rocco Rocco gave me this big list of all these great mistranslations of how Rachma ended up in the Old Testament from the Hebrew into Greek, and I believe the word is splugchna. And they mistranslated it horribly, like bowel movement and flatulence, and I'm not kidding. It's there. Clothe yourself with bowels rather than, you know, clothe yourself with compassion and empathy. Because there's a depth in that, because when one's in that moment of rachma, an example that I give for people of what rachma is, is, you know, I have a girl that, that well, she's a woman now. She grew up down the street from me, moved to California. And her son did several tours of duty in Iraq. He did three of them in a row, which is kind of not common. The last one he filled in for a friend who couldn't do it. Um, and she thought he wasn't going to be home for another week. And there was this video that her husband posted on Facebook like five years ago or so. It might have been a little longer than that. And he was filming her as somebody was knocking at the front door. And Tammy opens the front door, and all, she's going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. There's her son standing at the door. She thought she wouldn't see him for another week, but they lined it up so that he'd be there that night. And she was in that state. And you know what's happening when someone's in that state, whether it's the birth of a child, a moment of ecstasy, amazing music. You're in that moment when things line up and the soul's wide open, the untethered soul. When you're wide open like that, your bowels move. You do have – it's not a bowel movement. So there is an aspect in that, the quaking in the center of the physical body as well, but – Rachma is in Tuve Hunla Rachmane, is that essentially that when you are in that place, you're in that place where you're 100% absolutely open. It doesn't matter the theology of how you translate or, or define this word. Everybody's had a moment in their life, like I say, whether it's music. For me, it's happened in different moments, being such a, a, an, a, 
being a musician since I was 10 and having so many musician friends, it, it happens being out in the woods. Those moments where it's like everything's just right and everything lines up after forgiveness, meaning this. Not necessarily you just went through some big forgiveness process, but you're not holding on to anything in the moment. There's no goal that needs to be met right now, and until that's met, then you'll be open. It's just you're there. You've let go of the goals, the needs, and it's that matter of literally where you're, you're – you were talking about God bumps, you know, the God bumps. It's the quaking in the center of the spiritual body. Rachma is that, and when you approach others with that, you'll get it back. But that doesn't necessarily mean, as an example, like in the water healings that I do, it doesn't mean that pe- the, the person in front of me, the participant, is just going to throw their arms around me and give me a big kiss. What that means is that Rachma within me is going to resonate Rachma within them. Yet, if they have a lot of stuff on top of that, they've got um, different kinds of garbage, you know, whatever. I can't remember what Ron Roth used to call it. I think he just called it the junk. He said, you know, to drop the junk and let the angels pick up the mess. But they've got that stuff on tap, top that might come out first. And that's why, of course, it's very important. And I've seen it a bazillion times, you know, working with different amazing healers. You see it in, in, in breath work. You see it in, in, in the forgiveness process. You know, go through the worksheet, you know, Michael's worksheet, especially the, the children's one. That's the one I use with people because it doesn't engage so much of the brain. Um, it keeps you on the heart level. And when they get to that point where it's – and you can't put that in the words – to me, that rachma, that's what I was feeling when I was a kid. That's what I was feeling when I was looking at that Bible. That's what I was feeling when I'm you know, out there in the tunnel under the road toning sounds and I'm laying back in the stream going, oh. That's what I felt when our, our, our children were born. There's, there's a whole section in my book about our, our youngest being born and the death of my mother. I felt rachma on her final passing. Um, really... The, the Beatitudes build up, and that even goes to the sixth one, which is Blessed are the Pure in Heart, which is actually a decent translation, and then, of course, the one, the one of the peacemakers. In our retreats, we go through them individually, pretty much every retreat, um, not in a, an under, you know, sort of a, you know, a, a linguistic or a, a brainy way like an intellectual way. We do it from a level of intelligence of, you know, how do I actually live this? Um, which is the core of everything that I'm seeking to put out there. You said people had questions. I'd love to know what some of those questions are. All right. Let me just have a break. Yeah, no, once here. I get going, it's <laughs> well, it's delightful, and I, I thank you for that. We had one person who was asking from uh, down under uh, the the or which is older. Uh, Sanskrit or Aramaic what do you know of Sanskrit is it related to Aramaic or well there's there's here's the thing we don't really I got to put a couple things up first of all are they related they they had some relations <laughs> this doesn't sound right but they did have some relations are they related not necessarily there are words that show up in that are in Aramaic and the Hindi languages and Sanskrit such as Abraham, Abraham Abraham, his original name in the Bible was Abram, which is Father Ram. Father Ram, that's very Eastern, that's in the Sanskrit and the Hindi languages. The Aramaic and, and the Hindi languages did actually, 
essentially cohabitate, and they are still in existence in a rudimentary form in different parts of India, but they're not necessarily related per se. In terms of which one is older, here's the, the thing. It's just like if you ask about uh, Aramaic and Hebrew. We know that Hebrew uh, was written down first, so a lot of scholars say, okay, that makes it older, but we also know that Aramaic was spoken 900 years before Hebrew, um, chicken and egg kind of thing. It depends on who you ask. My gut sort of tells me that they kind of popped up at the same time. A lot of people misrepresent Aramaic, say that it's the mother tongue, which is, I'm sorry, it's just, it's a, it's a childish statement because we know that, uh, we know of Akkadian, Phoenician, and Sumerian alone that were there long before Aramaic by thousands and thousands of years. Um, so I can't fully answer which is older with Sanskrit. If you see people that work with Sanskrit uh, more than I have, and I've dabbled but not a lot, they'll usually say that's older. I would just say the jury's out, and we'll probably never know. Um, Akkadian, Phoenician, Sumerian goes back to 11,000 years ago, and we know there was no Aramaic then. But the, the syllabus, the, the root sounds that are in the oldest Semitic languages known are the ones that are in Aramaic, so it was still some form of those. But um, in terms of Sanskrit and Aramaic, can't really answer that question fully. Okay, well, what little I know about Sanskrit and the, the toning and chanting that comes with it reminds me of what I was reading in your book, Echoes of an Ancient Dream, that the actual origins of the the scripts that, you know, the scrolls that became the Bible, et cetera, was mm -hmm. a string of characters that weren't even yeah. words, just a string of characters that were toned. And that's the, 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 the Torah, yeah, the beginning of Genesis. Yeah, the, be, yeah. The, the, the book of Bereshit in the Hebrew, uh, for the first, it was about 900 years but after that was first written down, before they put final markers at the end of the words, before they put spaces, because they, is, it wasn't words. It was actually meant to be read more like a mathematical algorithm than as a story. The story didn't happen of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That happened 900 years after the letters were for, first put on the page. And again, you know, uh, you got to look into the work. Although he's very hard-lined in his beliefs about certain things, go to meru.org, meru.org, Stanley Tenen, Stan Tenen. Um, I remember sitting in, you know, Michael Rice's house, like the summer of 1995, watching Stan on on DVD or VHS, I think, for the first time, and my jaw was dragging on the floor for like two weeks after that. And since then, I've got all the DVDs, and I've communicate with it, communicated with he and his wife, Lavana. Stan's the one that really unpacked what was there in the beginning of Genesis. And they didn't speak it as, as words. They toned the letters. And the real key to it was, and that's in my book, the real key to it is that each of the letters is toned consciously. You're aware of the meaning, the essence of each letter, because you can actually translate it letter by letter or word for word, Aramaic as well. Um, especially the more religious or sacred texts, not as much in the sort of colloquial, everyday speaking, common speaking. But they were aware of each of the letters, and they were aware of the words that could be formed from those letters, and they were also aware of the overarching energy of the entire text. And they didn't say it. They didn't say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They sang it. And you know, and they saw that on such a depth. 
But now, of course, especially with the Septuagint right before Jesus was born, uh, going into Greek, we have just this one sort of thin storyline translation of it. And if you don't look at it in the, in the Hebrew, you're not going to get it. Um, it's just not there. Aramaic is the same. So, And that, yeah, that's all over my book. Here's the, the next question in, in order of how it was received. A gentleman asks, it seems that uh, many non-Jewish people today want to focus almost exclusively on the New Testament and ignore or downplay the value of Old Testament esoteric and allegorical teachings as they were uh, part of shaping Yeshua's gospel. Um, do you have any comments on that? I say absolutely. Uh a lot do that, um, and I mean the the Old Testament is not necessarily the Hebrew Bible, which is not necessarily, which of course is separate from those books that were written. Of course, we know for a fact in Greek, and of course within the Hebrew, and, and including uh, in Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, we know that there's Aramaic threaded within that, even within the Hebrew. And we also know that the Amidah and the Kaddish, two of the most sacred prayers of Judaism, are actually go back and forth between Aramaic and Hebrew, even though the Hebrew speakers don't even realize that. Uh, people do, absolutely. My take on that is this. Um, I definitely do not downplay it, and yet at the same time, I know that what I'm looking for is not outside of myself. You know, in the words of St. Francis of Assisi, what you're looking for is what is looking. And I've been able to approach – I don't even like saying the word the Old Testament. It, it makes it sound less important or, or stodgy or moldy or something like that, smelling like a musty old book. You know, I, I look – I see the Hebrew Bible, Bible differently th from, as an example, Psalms and Proverbs and that which is written in Greek. And, you know, I'm looking at those, and there's – a lot of questionable stuff in the Hebrew Bible. You look at the five books of Moses, and at one point Moses is writing about his own death, and they told us that Moses wrote them. Okay, that's an interesting little miracle there. Uh, but there's so much there. God seems pissed off. Elohim seems so mad and angry. And a lot of people will throw it out because of that. Uh, but that's the thing that's the most important to remember. Jesus was Jewish. That's, that's the amazing thing to me when people are like, you know, Jesus was a Christian. I'm like, hello? It's like saying that he spoke English, which I had never thought of until I was like 20 years old. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I never thought about the fact that he never spoke English. Um, yeah, people absolutely do do that. It's very unfortunate. And yet also, by the same token, I know those um, – I know people that study – and I studied the Kabbalistic uh, ideas a lot for a long time – and I got a little, just like anything else, I saw people really addicted to the frames. They got addicted to turning it into some kind of a, you know, a religion to the point of an addiction to the ideas rather than allowing it to still be alive. I see that within Judaism. You can see it with some Hasidic Jews. You can see it within the Kabbalistic ideas. You can see it in the Greek Orthodox Church, the Christian Church, the New Age Church, the Unity Church, the Unitarian Church, the Centers for Spiritual Living. It's everywhere. And to the best of my ability, it's a funny thing when people ask me real technical questions, and sometimes I'll say, I don't know, or I'll also say, you know, it's not in the books, it's not in the words, but here's the answer. It's really about how awake am I right now? How present am I? And, yeah, people do it. They throw it out all the time, i got to say. And it's unfortunate, but 
I got to also say not everything's going to resonate for everybody. So, yeah, it happens all the time. Actually, I'll say really quick, too. I just relaunched my mentoring program. I have a one-on-one mentoring program, weekly mentoring. You can go on my website, click on private sections, and click on the mentoring um, or mentorship. That's something that I stopped doing for a while because my schedule was too busy. And that's where you can work one-on-one with me on a weekly basis, and we can go as deep as you want and as wide as you want for anywhere from one week to a year. A year is the longest module that I'm offering right now, so... Fabulous. I don't have words. I hope so that's good. <laughs> it is. It is fabulous. It is. I have great. I have gratitude for your sharing the time with us. I have tears coming to my eyes. I am blessed to have known you and your work. And so I have no words. Thank you. And I, you know, I always remember like at Unity and Woodstock, which we'd love to come back to sometime. Whenever you were in the room, you were always, you weren't scribbling notes. You were like in an altered state, and you were taking it straight into the center of your consciousness, and that's always meant a lot to me. Um, Yeah, in a hundred thousand different ways, you were fully present. So thank you. Well, that's the the intention. (laughs) It happens once in a while, but that is the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a pre-recorded interview with uh, Dale Allen Hoffman, and I enjoyed listening to that. I hope you did too. As far as I know, Dr. Tim will be back with us tomorrow, and. Uh, give Michael a little bit to, uh, before he dials in. Uh, that show ended about six minutes early. Hope that you are having a blessed Memorial Day. And today is Monday, May the 29th, 2023. And we honor today, you know, it's a day representing honoring those who have fallen in military. And that could be extended to those that have, you know, fallen in any kind of line of duty. Uh, it says it was first proclaimed in 1868 as what we've come to know as Memorial Day. It was originally created to honor those who died in the American Civil War. It was originally called Decoration Day. After World War One, the day was expanded to honor all Americans who died in all wars. And uh, so, you know, those who have given their lives, even if they're still physically alive, they have given a lot. Um, So many of them have PTSD. There are so many who commit suicide and, you know, that live with demons every day of what they went through in the war. And uh, so we, we do thank and honor all of those and even the family members, you know, because the the wives and the children and parents, they all are impacted by the same things, maybe in a different aspect of it, but they're still impacted by it. So if you, if you have served or if you have a family member who has served, then we pass our love and our gratitude and, and uh, hold the space for total healing. And so we welcome you to the show. 
I still have a little sore throat, but I've got my voice back. And I'm not sure what Michael has planned for today. So um, I could pick up reading out of the Untethered Soul. And where we left off, uh, I don't know if you remember, because we've had a couple days there in between where uh, we weren't doing live shows. But uh, we had talked about personifying the voice that's inside of your head. And we asked the question, who are you? And you're not, you know, the uh, person who works at a specific job or whatever. And so to go on from that, you are in there having both inner and outer experiences, but who are you? To explore this more deeply, answer another question. Don't you have times when you're not having emotional experiences and instead you just feel quiet inside? still in there, and you're just as uh, aware of peaceful quiet, eventually you will begin to realize that the outside world and the flow of inner emotions come and go, but you, the one who experiences these things, remain consciously aware of whatever passes before you. And hold on, I just heard Michael say, oh, oh, okay, he dialed in, he had to dial in on a regular line there. Okay, and, uh, you know, the first thing I thought of when I read that was during uh, still point sessions. A lot of times, you know, you'll have the whole Technicolor movie or sounds or colors or whatever, but then there's other times when you're doing the breathing that it's just peace. It's just total quiet, and you're just there. But where are you? Maybe we can find you in your thoughts. Renee Descartes a great philosopher, I probably said that name wrong, once said, I think, therefore I am. But is that really what's going on? The dictionary defines the verb to think as to form thoughts, to use the mind to consider ideas and make judgments. The question is, who is using the mind to form thoughts and then manipulate them into ideas and judgments? Does this experiencer of thoughts exist even when thoughts are not present? Unfortunately, you don't have to think about it. You are very aware of your presence of being, your sense of existence, without the help of your thoughts. When you go into deep meditation, for example, the thoughts stop. You know that they've stopped. You don't think it. You are simply aware that there are no thoughts. You come back and you say, wow, I went into this deep meditation and for the first time my thoughts completely stopped. I was in a place of complete peace, harmony, and quiet. If you are in there experiencing the peace that occurs when your thoughts stop, then obviously your existence is not dependent upon the act of thinking. Thoughts can stop, and they can also get extremely noisy. Sometimes you have many more thoughts than other times. You may even tell someone, my mind is driving me crazy. Ever since he said those things to me, I can't even sleep. My mind just won't shut up. Well, whose mind? Who's noticing these thoughts? Isn't it you? Don't you hear your thoughts inside? Aren't you aware of their existence? In fact, can't you get rid of them? If you start to have a thought you don't like, can't you try to make it go away? People struggle with thoughts all the time. Who is it that is aware of the thoughts? Who is it that struggles with them? Again, you have a subject 
object relationship with your thoughts. You are the subject, and thoughts are just another object you can be aware of. You are not your thoughts. You are simply aware of your thoughts. Finally, you say, fine. I'm not anything in the outside world, and I'm not the emotions. These outer and inner objects come and go, and I experience them. Plus, I'm not the thoughts. They can be quiet or noisy, happy or sad. Thoughts are just something else I'm aware of. But who am I? It starts to become a serious question, who am I? Who is having all these physical, emotional, and mental experiences? So you contemplate this question a little deeper. This is done by letting go of the experiences and noticing who is left. You will begin to notice who is experiencing the experience. Eventually, you will get to a point within yourself where you realize that you, the experiencer, have a certain quality. And that quality is awareness, consciousness, an intuitive sense of existence. You know that you're in there. You don't have to think about it. You just know. You can think about it if you want to, but you will know that you're thinking about it. You exist regardless. Thoughts or no thoughts. To make this more experiential, let's try a consciousness experiment. Notice that with a single glance at a room or out a window, you instantaneously see the full detail of everything that's in front of you. You are effortlessly aware of all the objects that are within the scope of your vision, both near and far. Without moving your head or eyes, you perceive all the intricate detail of what you immediately see. Look at all the colors, the variations of light, the grain of wood furniture, the architecture of buildings, the variations of bark and leaves on trees. Notice that you take all this in at once without having to think about it. No thoughts are necessary. You just see it. Now, try to use thoughts to isolate, label, describe all the intricate detail of what you see. How long would it take your mental voice to describe all that detail to you versus the instantaneous snapshot of consciousness just seen? When you just look without creating thoughts, your consciousness is effortlessly aware of and fully comprehends all that it sees. Consciousness is the highest word you will ever utter. There is nothing higher or deeper than consciousness. Consciousness is pure awareness. But what is awareness? Well, let's try another experiment. Let's say you're in a room looking at a group of people and a piano. Now make believe that the piano ceases to exist in your world. Would you have a problem with that? You say, "Mm, no, I don't think so. I'm not attached to the piano. Okay, then. Make believe the people in the room cease to exist. Are you still okay? Can you handle it? Can you say, sure, I like being alone. Now make believe your awareness doesn't exist. Just turn it off. How are you doing now? What would it be like if your awareness didn't exist? Pretty simple. You wouldn't be there. There would be no sense of, quote, unquote, me. There wouldn't be anyone in there to say, wow, I used to be in here and now I'm not. There would no longer be an awareness of being. And without awareness of being or consciousness, there's nothing. Are there objects? Who knows? If no one is aware of the objects, 
their existence or non-existence becomes completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter how many things are in front of you. If you turn off the consciousness, there's nothing. If you are conscious, however, there can be nothing in front of you, but you are fully aware that there is nothing. It's really not that complicated, and it's very enlightening. So, now I ask you, who are you? And you answer, I am the one who sees. From back in here somewhere, I look out and I am aware of the events, the thoughts, and the emotions that pass before me. If you go very deep, that is where you live. You live in the seat of consciousness. A true spiritual being lives there, without effort and without intent. Just as you effortlessly look outside and see all that you see, you will eventually sit far enough back inside to see all your thoughts and emotions, as well as outer form. All of these objects are in front of you. The thoughts are closer in. The emotions are a little further away. And form is way out there. Behind it all, there you are. You go so deep that you realize that's where you've always been. At each stage of life, you have seen different thoughts, emotions, and objects pass before you, but you have always been the conscious receiver of all of that, all that was. Now you you are in your center of consciousness. You are behind everything, just watching. That is your true home. Take everything else away, and you're still there, aware that everything is the center of awareness away, and there's nothing. That seat is the center is the seat of self. From that seat, you are aware that there are thoughts, emotions, and a world coming in through your senses. But now you are aware that you're aware. That is the seat of the Buddhist self or the Hindu Arman and the Judeo-Christian soul. The great mystery begins once you take that seat deep within. And that's the end of the chapter, Who Are You? And it made me, I see Michael's hand up, so I'll turn on his microphone here in a second. But it made me think, you know, we have a book of emotions and we have the little emotion uh, icons that Aria plays with and the dolls. And then she has a poster that has all these emotions. And she does a gratitude book. And part of the gratitude book is recognizing your feelings and your emotions. And so she's getting the concepts of all of that, even at the age of four. So I'm going to welcome Michael to the show. Why don't you go ahead, Jeannie, and share the text that you got from Gabby before we move to the next set of thoughts. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, Aria, uh, was, she likes to play doctor. And she's always, you know, fixing her animals and fixing people and so to fix them, something's got to be wrong. And we're attempting to work with her that, you know, somebody can come to you just for a wellness checkup or, you know, just for some advice or something. They don't have to be hurt or have to be sick. And she was like, well, let's pretend I broke my arm. I said, well, cancel that thought. Funny, and it's like, you know, when you say things with your words, you're telling the universe what to give you, and you don't want the universe to give you a broken arm. I know you're playing, but I said, you know, let's cancel that thought. So now that was last Friday, not this past Friday, but the Friday before. I didn't ha- we didn't have her at all this week because of me going through the healing crisis. 
But then I get this text. So she's home with her mom all day on Saturday. So it's been eight days since we've had her. And Gabby sends me this text. And she says, Aria has said, quote, cancel that thought, unquote, about 200 times today over everything. (laughs) She's got it. I am. And it's all about getting rid of the past and remembering. There's a different, I want to bring a different aspect to this idea of remembrance. Memorial Day and recognize a different level as it relates to work. And just on the what Jeannie just read, a couple things, you know, he talks about seeing. But I invite you to question yourself, are you really seeing anything? My offering is, we say, I see the window out here, I see the door, I see the garden, I see the sink. And the truth is, I don't see anything with my eyes. The eye is a receiver of light. As a receiver, we call that an antenna. And you can't see out through the antenna. It's a one-way valve. Light energy comes in. Light energy resonates or causes thought to move through resonance. Thought moves. And we have this device called a mind that converts thoughts to pictures. So my offering is, rather than seeing what's out there, your brain replicates according to your goals, what's resonated within you and massages it into looking like what's out there. But you're not looking at anything out there at all. What you're looking at is what your mind shows you. And this is especially important when it comes to interpersonal interactions and relationships. Because if my brain which fires information and results in my mind showing me things, holds content resonated by what's going on out there energetically, but isn't actually out there. In fact, my brain will show me something that's inside of me, and because of my goals, Reflect that as a picture of something that I think is outside of me. This is what happens when you go into a courtroom and you watch six different people testify about the accident and no two of them have the same realities. Because no two of them, although they were at the the same accident site, no two of them have the same pictures come to mind. No two of them, as a result of that accident, have the same content resonated so each one has a different a different reality that their mind shows them remembering that i offer this as part of remembrance day memorial memorial day is that disturbance is a result of the act of the operation of the mind all disturbance is a result of the operation of the mind. 
Remembrance Day, Virginia had sent me a note. She'd done some research. It was first, first proclaimed in 1896. And what we now call Memorial Day was originally created to honor those who died in the American Civil War. Now, Civil War, of course, is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. It was originally called Decoration Day after World War One, and the day was extended to extended to honor all Americans who died in all wars. Now, my offering is this focus on the dead the dying and death, is all a focus on the past, and voids the very life of those who died. By blocking our awareness of their existence through a focus in the past. You know, when Jeannie's dad passed away a few months ago, we got to see part of his leaving his body and it was clear that he wasn't finished with his life his body was finished but he wasn't we got to watch him go on we got to see him you know here's a man who hadn't sat up rolled over gotten out of bed stood up in well over a year closer probably to a year and a half I haven't sat and looked at the calendar but probably a year and a half and laying in his bed, being treated in a hospital, having gotten Jeannie's permission to leave his body, that it was time if it was time for him. An hour and a half after he got that permission from Jeannie, we were sitting in the room with him. He fortunately waited for us. A man who hadn't rolled over even in a year and a half sat bolt upright, eyes bulging out of his head, looking up to the left, took his last breath, and we got to see him enter a new level of his life. To focus on his past is to deny his aliveness today. We've been trained to focus on the dead and the dying, and that's part of what kills us. That's the energy, the focus. Yeshua says, let thine eye be single, your focus is singular, and thy body will be filled with light. If you talk to a physicist today, they'll tell you that matter is light energy solidified. So if I focus on death and dying, a single act, I as single, then I get to kill myself. And I get to kill the awareness of those who have left their bodies. And we They've been taught that life is over and it's actually just a beginning. So memorialize that. Remember, not the death of those who've died, not the past, but space for you to develop the faculties to be aware of the eternal nature of being. The focus on the dead and the dying is as though they are no longer in existence. And we do that with little bits of mind energy that we call thought. And if we are awake and aware in this state of being that Michael's talking about in his book, then we realize that we are designed to be the source of the energy which we focus on and with which we create 
in our world. If we're not aware of that, then there's this one-way flow of bits of genetic information, maybe, you know, according to our goals, maybe assembled from, you know, a hundred lifetimes of unresolved, and I'm talking about a hundred generations of unresolved issues that produce these disturbing realities in our minds, these disturbing constructs organized by the goals that we hold in the present moment. And so these seeming thoughts from the past produce this picture world that exists nowhere except in our minds. They are not part of the actuality of life. So these thoughts flowing from the past, as long as we think they're actually the present, are absolutely useless because they're nothing but remnants of bits of genetic information from the past massaged by goals to look like coherent excuses for why our suffering is caused by somebody else. They mean nothing. The mind is designed to be an instrument of creation, but left to its own devices, it will only replicate the past. In order, and the goal of this work is to claim your place as a conscious creator. In order to truly claim your place as a conscious creator, there must be a stream of disciplined thoughts sourced from being, based in love, that are consciously flowed into your structure, into your world, through your structure. And that's assisted. The delivery of that energy is assisted by the breath. If a stream of thoughts comes from carbon-based memory, from the past, about sadness or grief or rage or somebody else's blame, if you're a member of the one-world universal religion of blame, then your mind, that is, and it really isn't a mind, it's really just the, the repository of data from the past, shoots up unresolved issue after unresolved issue, generation after generation, and living in that is called living in the desert. We're not designed to live in the desert, we're designed to live as conscious beings and to, to discipline yourself to... Apply forgiveness to remove the stream of thought from the past because once it's energized with pain, it will run on its own without interference forever. You can do the drama and trauma game, and if you were two and those thoughts were streaming forth, then the focus of your drama and trauma was big brother, big sister, and if you were 10, it was maybe that person you were attracted to and if you were 16 it was maybe that person you were dating and if you were 25 it was maybe that person you were married to and the one world religion of blame with its goals for others to be responsible causes our database to produce realities massages that data into a set of pictures that makes our fear and our hostility and our rage and our guilt and our grief and our pain and our drama and trauma everybody else's fault. This man Yeshua 2,000 years ago, to those who lived in that world, he said, let the dead bury the dead. Let the blind lead the blind. Be finished with the past. 
Because in the present is the life of every person you've ever known, whether they're in their bodies or not. Present is your life. And so it's about reversing the flow of information from what the world has trained us to do. The world's trained us to live in these bits of data stored in carbon-based memory that come forward and form the world we see that we think is actually out there. And that's where all disturbance comes from. Apply forgiveness to weaken and ultimately remove the trauma-based bits of energy. The trauma-based bits of energy that cause the alcoholic to drink and the drug addict to drug and the food addict to food and the sex addict to sex in order to avoid dealing with that pain. Let go of those things. Face that pain head on. Apply forgiveness to it and remove it and now become the source of the stream of information that brings you into creatorship and that if you have somewhere in your structure that's in pain, it's in trauma, that's in tension, then you feed a stream of actual thought. You source a stream of actual thought based in love to that part of your structure. And when the breath carries that thought based in love to that part of your structure, that part of your structure heals. But it's hard to do if your mind's telling me about how Harry's the cause of your pain and Mary's the cause of your rage and the government's the cause of your sadness and somebody else's the cause of your rage and your guilt and your grief. A whole stream of thoughts that creates a whole world that look like bodies that we populate our minds with, and we populate those because we have goals for the object of attention in our lives, and if there are unresolved energies within us, it's hard to become the source of the conscious stream of thought from the true mind. In the ancient teachings, it was called the mind of Christ. Nothing religious about it. The mind of love in you is called the mind of Christ. And what Yeshua was trying to get people to do was to function from that rather than function from carbon-based memory. That mind of carbon-based memory, if you remember, it had a number. What mitigates against the life of active love in you, which is brought into your structure through what was called the mind of Christ? Obviously, if we looked in that language, not implying religion, but just looking at the fact of it, the mind that goes against you living in the mind of love would be called, obviously, if the the mind of love is the mind of Christ in you, then the mind that goes against it is the antichrist. Physicist. To take a body, a human form, take into the laboratory and tell us what chemicals it's made up, the primary atomic structure will be what we call carbon. The structure is primarily made of carbon. And if you look into the carbon atom, you'll find that the natural carbon atom has six electrons, six protons, six neutrons. That's where the past is stored, carbon-based memory. What is that number? Six, 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 but the number of the anti 
Christ. The mind that holds unresolved pain and trauma from generations and generations and generations keeps us locked in the desert. Not a hot, sandy place that's 35 square miles in the Mideast, but the state of unconsciousness. And to get out of that into the space of conscious, active creation, which in those ancient teachings was called the promised land, you have to get out of the desert. What did they say had to happen to get out of the desert? If you go back and look at that story in the Old Testament. What had to happen? They said the old generation had to die off. That didn't mean everybody in old physical bodies had to physically die. The root of the word generation is genaria. It means cause. Remember. Memorial Day, remember who you are and know that you can be at cause. And in a world where most people are controlled by nothing but the unresolved traumas and traumas and terrors and greeds of the past. 666, a product of carbon-based memory that produces massaged images of how everybody else is the problem in your life. And yet, if you'll stop for just one minute and notice, as you talk about your conclusion about others and how they're the problem in your life, and if only they were different, I could do better. Notice that every time you've been there, you're the one who was there. Oh, you had person one, person two, three, four, five, ten, fifty, a hundred maybe. And while your mind can generate pictures that point at everybody else and how they're the problem in your life, what you're telling me is you haven't yet awakened to the truth of who you are. And that you're relying on a mind that probably from about the age of four followed the religion of their parents, which is the one world religion of blame modeled by parents. Everybody else is the problem. And when we wake up and stop the stream of what appear to be thoughts, but it's not really even thoughts. Again, it's just bits of data that because we hold goals for the moment are organized or massaged into a coherent picture that if our basic bottom line goal is to protect ourselves, has us sitting in the place of protecting ourselves from everyone else. But when we feel like we have to protect ourselves, we're attacking ourselves. And, of course, we attack ourselves. We communicate that to others, especially those we're most intimate with. And they tend to play out our attack. But we think it's their attack, not our invitation, our unresolved energies. And so applying the tool of forgiveness is how you remove from carbon-based memory the generational pattern that has you believe the belief that somebody else is the reason you haven't created what it is that you want to create. Memorial Day, I'd offer the most important function of Memorial Day to remember, to reconnect with who you are as a human creator.
if you haven't created it, exit the one world religion of blame. Take responsibility. Forgive that part of you that is the block that you put into your brain's image of everybody else and think it's their problem. Come back to the truth of who you are as a creator. Stop making excuses for why you're not where you'd like to be. Stop pretending that it's every or anybody else's fault. Now, this idea of being a creator, everybody loves the idea of being a creator. When the creation's going well. But when it's not going so well, because the one world religion of blame has been around from the very beginning and by four, the people around us have modeled living it and we become by four for the average person, a card-carrying member in the one world religion of blame. Oh yes, it's their fault. When do I wake up and do the forgiveness work required to remove that lie from our minds and show up as creators, show up as the space that inspires all of life living to come forward and play in creatorship rather than the past playing out the drama and trauma and calling life to come forward and play out our drama and trauma with us, with them. Yes, both directions. At what point do we give up the past? At what point the one world religion, the universal religion of blame? Where did that religion start? Well, one record we have of the ancient past goes into a thing called the Old Testament. And you'll remember if you go back and do some reading in the early stages of that book, There was this guy named Adam, Adamos, which means red clay, carbon-based memory. And you remember that when there were troubles happening, Adamos had already, Adam was already a member of the one world religion of blame. And he pointed his blame in two directions. When things weren't going his way, it was a conversation about the creator. God, you... Gave me that woman. So now what do we got? We got a dual prong blame. If it wasn't God, it was the woman. I'm just the innocent Adam who's been victimized here. When do we stop playing that game? When do we wake up to who we are as human creators? When do we realize there's only one problem in my life and I'm it? And that there's only one solution and I am that too. Those who live in a game of blame put a toxic energy into their systems that ultimately kills them. There is no other cause of death. There's a wonderful line in The Course in Miracles. I'm going to edit it slightly, but basically it says, swear to live eternally, you son or daughter of the creator of love. 
It actually says the regulatory speech isn't so great in that book sometimes. It says, swear never to die, you holy son of God. But swear to live eternally. Give up this belief that something outside of you is the problem because that belief means you hold an energy within you that ultimately will kill you. Apply forgiveness there, remove that energy, and go on and be a conscious creator. We are in the Garden of Eden. That metaphor is the world of conscious co-creation. That's what we're designed for. We pooped in the garden and blamed somebody else. When did we grow up and become adults and take responsibility? That's what this work is about. That's what we're here for, to support that in our world. Remember, memorialize who you are by creating the highest and best visions that you're capable of. And if you knock your head against those visions and can't bring it to fruition, get the worksheets out and do the next level of your work. Stop making the excuse that somebody else is the problem. You are an eternal being. You're designed to be eternal. Death is a family tradition. You know, what's his name? Hank Williams said that song out there. Mother Lang goes something like, Hank, why do you drink? Hank, why do you blow smoke? Hank, why do you live out every song that you've wrote? What's Hank say in response? It's a family tradition. If we're trapped in the family traditions, we're trapped in the past. There is no future in the past. There is no life there. That's the world where the dead bury the dead and the blind lead the blind. Put your name in the song. Hank, why do you drink? Hank, why do you blow smoke? Why must you live out every song that you wrote? Go ahead, look at your family traditions. Notice, if you're a member of that one world religion of blame, you got somebody else to blame for the fact that you're living out the family tradition. Are you going to face it? Are you going to forgive it? Are you going to change it? Enter the world of a conscious co-creator. Waking up to who you are, bringing all of the faculties of your being into carbon-based memory rather than buying the story that carbon-based memory has to offer you. That's what we're here to do. That's what this work is all about. So what do you think of that, Jeannie? I agree. And I was just looking up, there was actually a movie that we saw one time, and I have yet to be able to find it. And it had to do with developing some kind of an app, too, that lit up, that the lights would light up all over the world. Um, but it doesn't come to fruition until the mother's getting ready to pass. And she's looking at all of the lights by satellite. It's showing all the lights lighting up all over the world and how much one person's life can impact others. But in part of that movie, she's explaining to her children that she's not really going away, that she's just 
like walked into the other room. But I can't find that movie, but I did. There's a poem called Death is Nothing at All. It's by Henry Scott Holland. It says, nothing at all. It does not count. I've only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. I am I and you are you. And the old life that we lived so fondly together is untouched, unchanged. Whatever we were to each other, we still are. Call me by the old familiar name. Speak of me in the easy way which you always used. Put no difference into your tone. Wear no forced air of solemnity, solemnity or sorrow. Laugh as we always laughed at the little jokes that we enjoyed together. Play, smile, think of me, pray for me. Let my name be ever the household word that it always was. Let it be spoken without an effort, without the ghost of a shadow upon it. Life means all that it ever meant. It's the same as it ever was. There is absolute and unbroken continuity. What is, why should I be out of, out of mind just because I'm out of sight? I am but waiting for you for an interval somewhere very near, just around the corner. All is well. Nothing is hurt. Nothing is lost. One brief moment and all will be as it was before. How shall we laugh at the trouble of parting when we meet again? Powerful. Powerful, especially when reinforced by the quote that you came up with, sweetie, shortly after we were with your dad and he passed. And you said, ah, just like the scripture said, present with the Lord, absent from the body. We watched your dad move from his body, absent, it just laid back down, sacred, sweet, and he went to that space that was so amazing to him that his eyes just literally popped and he sat up and was just 100% present. Powerful. Powerful. So, in remembrance, in memorial of the life of those who have touched us and perhaps gone on, yet we know are still alive, very much alive. My offering is what this day is about. The non-being mind turned to something about death dying. Yeshua again said to those people, let the dead bury the dead, let the blind lead the blind. There's plenty of that drama and trauma to go around for everybody to play in that realm. But do you choose to do something different and step out of that realm and step into the truth of being? So that's what we're here to understand and accomplish. And we've got about 20 minutes left to your heart. Do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? It is all quiet. I'm assuming that probably a lot of people have 
you know, Memorial Day family gatherings or something. So if there's anybody out there in listener land, do you have a thought for us? Question about the tools? Question about anything that we've said? How can we support you? What's on your mind? If you're on one of the stations where we can't see you, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. Call that number and you're listening to the show directly. And, and we have a hand up. Oh, great. Let's say hello. I believe it's Susan 610. You are on the air. Welcome. Thank you. So I almost hesitated to call in because... I'm going through a period of great questioning and adventure, and I'm, I've been doing wake-up sheets to stay above it, but I have never, and it's about my health. Uh, I, I'm not myself, and um, the wake-up sheet that I did this morning was basically I'm concerned and afraid and curious about suddenly not having good blood sugar, practically diabetic, having elevated uh, blood pressure. And I've also been working on finishing all of my work and getting it tied up and ready to be archived in New York. And Michael is living with us, and he has taken over more and more jobs to the point where Tim and I were saying, hey, why do we go to a, 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 a place to live when Michael's living with us? Let's ask him how he'd feel about being our nurse if we needed one or taking over, you know, just being here as a kind of support man, support in the house. Yeah. Yeah, and, reasonable. Uh, and so he's doing that. He mowed the lawn today. He's watering all the plantings in front and back. He's tending my garden, which we're eating off of it. Wonderful, lots and lots of collards and arugula. We only planted two things, and we've got a ton of it, so we're making these smoothies and salads and things. And But my experience of watching, I feel like an observer, and I loved what you read at the beginning, Jeannie. Who am I? Just pure consciousness. I remember asking that of a scientist friend of mine when I was probably 25 years old and saying, you know, if you take everything away, what's left? Our awareness, our consciousness. And that seems to be everybody has that. Here I am 25 years old, and I'm talking to him. He said, that's it, that's it. He got all excited about it. And you're reading this again. It's so great to hear it. I have a lot of excitement and curiosity, but I feel like a, a brand new, weird, con, you know, um, I shouldn't say con, confused, but I don't know what to make of all this. And my birthday is in two days, and I'm turning 79, and I know that has something to do with it probably. But Happy experiences. Eternal day. <laughs> right. The experiences I'm having of um, vision is different. I feel as if I'm walking. This is an exaggeration. There's no words for it. They call it brain fog. 
even in the morning, I feel as if I'm peering out at the world and I can see perfectly clearly, but it's different. And I'm asking myself all these physical questions. Is this what it's like to have higher blood pressure? Is this what it's like when you're almost diabetic? Are these, I want information. I can't seem to get all the information I need. And I don't want to, what? Question. When did this state that you're describing start? Mm, It's hard to say. Uh, Remember the time sometime back I said, I'm so tired, and we thought it was a healing crisis? And the doctor said I should go on a statin drug. And by the way, I just started it last night. I thought I talked to my brother. My brother is 85 or 84. He's had two heart stents, excellent health uh, in, in the way he feels and enjoys life. But he takes, what is it? I've written them down. Various. He takes about seven drugs. Um Metformin, avalfapan, lipo, something or other. For for all the things I've been telling you, I have. And when my mother turned 80, she began having strokes, many strokes. And she lived to 95, but she had many little strokes. And the doctor's saying, considering your history, I'd like to put you on this medication and you know I've been fighting that and said I'm going on a keto diet and I'm going to do fasting. I've done those for three weeks and my blood sugar is higher and my blood pressure is a little higher. And I think, this isn't working. Cool. So, what do you mean, cool? Are you sure it's not working? Maybe it's working perfectly. Remember? Toward, toward shedding the body? Yeah, perhaps. Well... That might be one direction, or the other direction might be you've made a a new level of commitment to life. If just Mm -hmm. before these so-called symptoms happened, you'd hit a new level of vitality, are you processing Mm -hmm. out what you need to let go of to step into the next level of aliveness? Remember, it isn't Dr. Feelgood. Remember that on a physical level, it's going to look like any kind of physical symptom you've ever had. On a mental level, it's going to look like any kind of negative thought you've ever had and confusion. On an emotional level, it's going to look like any kind of negative feeling you've ever had and depression. So if you're doing your work and you hit a new level of vitality, and when I heard you describe, for instance, how the weekend went, yes, there's still concerns with Jacob, but there's a new level of aliveness in that experience. I'm just asking you to consider, are you hitting the next level of vitality and the next layer of what you need to peel out to step up to the plate on the next level of aliveness? I could be. I have no sense of that at this point. I'm just sitting here saying, holy mackerel. And it isn't, it isn't like fear because I really, really felt this wonderful shift in fear of death. In fact, I think to myself, oh, you know, I've done so much and going over my work in my life. I know the um, uh, others have mentioned their whole life work and stuff, but um, I'm amazed at the energy I had when I was younger. 
the amount of productions we put on and the amount of pieces we did and the huge rehearsals we ran and the sets we made and the, all of that stuff. And I look at it and I said, who did that? I have no interest in doing all that except to tie it up with a nice bow and my church is taking my stuff, my scores and stuff. So if they ever wanted to use it, they would. And I'm I'm loving this process of going through my whole life. Um, but I also think to myself, if I have to go, that's fine with me. But right. I think I might be going. That's what I think. I think I might be going. So my offering would be, if you're going, we'll hold the space and rock it with you. And if you're preparing for the next phase of your life and the next level of your purpose, because you seem to be closing up a lot of what finishing off, preserving what you've done in the past, I could see a space where, you know, you've been, I mean, seriously doing some deep work for several years now. And I could just as easily imagine a new place where, yes, your physiology is going to dip into the deepest traumas that it holds before the next level of aliveness can come to your physiology. The next level of you thing can come. So Mm -hmm. it could be either direction. It sounds like as long as you keep doing your work, it doesn't matter. Well, that's good. Hmm. Well... I anyway, see the whole space that it's the moving forward to the next level of your life because we love to play with you. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, 79 I, since I, a kid when you realize we're designed to be eternal. Well, I think about that a lot, Michael, and the 49-49 invitation. Uh, but I don't want to go that long in the state I'm in now. <laughs> it, would be too, it would be too hard. Um, But as you do your work, you upgrade the whole structure. I mean, I look at, you know, the first 25 years of my life, I was almost dead four or five times. I mean, the doctor's office was my home, the drugs, the the hospital visits, the, I mean, just, I I think so often about the suffering I put my parents through and the trauma I put them through. And... Mm -hmm. My level of vitality is beyond what I ever had in my life. I've been doing it a few decades. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. Keep clearing it out and open the space for embracing what's next. But I could see you being a therapist, moving to the next level of your teaching work and healing work with people. But you've got to do your own piece first. Mm. And you've been doing it. You've been doing it very powerfully. One when thing I've been the, noticing... Well, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, you go ahead. One thing um, you've been noticing? Um, I've never been a crier, and I've been crying a lot. I don't know about what. Everything strikes me as so gorgeous, so precious, so beautiful. That's your higher faculties opening. That's your higher that's your spiritual faculties opening. That's what life is. 
and it's the past that puts a tarnish on it. And you've been undoing and letting loose, forgiving the past. It's funny and how you've been seriously doing that for a long time now. Yeah. Thanks to your tools. Yeah. It just is mind-blowing. Anyway. Mind healing? (laughs) Yeah, I I hope so. Too much of looking outside for answers, that's for sure. I want the doctor to say this, or I go online to find out why this is doing this or that or the other. And basically what you're saying is the information is all there. You've always said that. On a scale of 1 to 10, if you go back, what is it, about five years ago you started listening to this show and doing this work? More like seven now. It's just amazing, yeah. Okay. So if you go back seven years ago, on a scale of 1 to 10, if you talk about vitality, back then, and you looked at the world, was it this bright, filled with beauty, awesome thing? Well, that's funny to say because in in some ways I had a ton more energy back then, but I was terrified of many things. So I'm not terrified. I feel quite peaceful. I shouldn't say I'm not terrified because you're going to correct that and say that was irresponsible speaking. I am peaceful, mostly peaceful, looking around and just I feel like a whole new person, not acquainted with this person. That's the idea. Oh, boy. My offering would be you're making room in a carbon-based memory system that has been called the body to bring forward and incarnate as love, as the beauty that you're seeing in the world as being, rather than living out of a false traumatized self, that lived in that terror and fear. And it there takes, was a lot of takes a tremendous amount of energy to process that old stuff out. Well, maybe that explains it because there was an awful lot of sort of kinetic nervous. I was always in a hurry, had to just hurry, hurry, hurry to get somewhere so I could be comfortable and safe. And that was driving me all my life. And I did a lot of great stuff using that energy. Now there's no desire to do all that. And uh, it's so new, I just don't know what to make of it. That's all. Can I offer a different interpretation? Sure. All that running I would offer was there was something inside of you chasing you, and you're trying to escape. Mm -hmm. And you gave up escaping, and you turned back and you faced it. And you've forgiven as to it. And now you get to incarnate in your form as the sweet presence of love that you are. And that's the beauty that you're seeing through. That's the filter you're seeing through rather than the generational filter of all the trauma and drama and the riding crop that you had used on you so many times. It's nothing Mm. chasing you anymore because you've cleaned it out. And the cat sounds like she agrees. 
<laughs> the cat just jumped up and is joining us here. <laughs> I know. This is my talkingest cat. So the well, cat is probably jumping yeah. right in to process the next level of, level of energy that you're moving. I think that's one of the reasons animals come into our lives is to support processing. And I think you're reaching a new level. And, you know, the cat was pulled right in to go, hey, I'm here to support you. <laughs> oh, he's a wonderful boy. <laughs> oh, well, it's wonderful to ask hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ask if he'll pardon me for calling him she. <laughs> oh, that's all right. All cats are females until you know otherwise. They start out like all dogs are males until you know their gender. Don't you find that true? Mm, not sure. But... Yes, I, I do. <laughs> hey, Jeannie, thank I always, you. I, I always call Ryan and Gabby's cat a she, and it's a he, and their dogs are she's, and mm-hmm. I call them he's. So, yes. Yep. Yeah, that's kind of, I mean, when we're walking, oh, uh, what kind of a breed is he, they'll say. And our, do- our grand dog is a, is a lady dog. She's 11. And they all seem so embarrassed when I correct them, but it's not a matter of embarrassment. It's just the universal gender for cats until knowing otherwise, to me, seems like a female. And, uh, you know, otherwise, dogs are the opposite. I don't know why that is. But anyway, Jeannie, I wanted to say something I've always admired about you that I think of a lot these days. As I embarrass myself, I'm in, yesterday at church, we have a very Hispanic-speaking neighborhood And our new young rector is bilingual, and I know we're going to cut off. We had a beautiful Pentecost service in two two languages, which is appropriate for Pentecost, and various others of us spoke different languages during the first reading. But it was one of the most gorgeous things, and all I wanted to do was just howl with being moved by the whole thing. And, of course, I don't in church. I I get out my hanky and I blow my nose a few times. But, Jeannie, I've always admired you because you cry. You just plain old cry. (laughs) And that is such a wonderful gift. (laughs) I have uh, always, you know, just shown my emotions. I cry if I'm happy or sad or afraid. or It's just like that's my outlet, I guess. (laughs) Well... It's a gorgeous thing to me who never dared to. Now I seem to be doing quite a lot of it, but not How many for times sadness. did you hear the you... line? How many times did you hear the line like I did? If you don't stop that crying, I'll give you something to cry for. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, my sister got whipped for crying. Yeah. yeah. And so I know, I know where that came from. And there's a tremendous amount of shame associated with crying for myself when i see other people cry I, i'm i say way to go keep doing that that's okay cool. okay yeah. show's gonna yeah, cut please. us off so how about a mind shift yeah. you got your pen handy yeah my power person mm-hmm. always embraced me fully mm-hmm. and approved of me oh Especially when I wore my pain on my sleeve. I got it. Okay. So this is imagining a new mother. Well, this is processing out the old 
carbon-based memory picture of mother, power person, Mm -hmm. and making Mm -hmm. space for your actual mother to visit you. That's gorgeous. I love that idea. That's beautiful. Thank you. Joining you in that beauty. Mm. My mom's been gone about five or six years, and I chat with her all the time and visit with her all the time. Mm. So I hold a space for the the sweetness that I get to experience there. And I, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, the story that you're telling with your power person mom, mine was power person dad, but I always had that safe space with my mom. And so I still continue that relationship very consciously and purposely. Wonderful. She must love it. Thank we you both so do. much. We mm. both do. Mm, that's that's the sense of it. Mm. Joining you in that really sweet. Mm. Thank you. Happy Memorial Day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. All right. You too. Thank you. We